1: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very much looking forward to this conversation with Dr. Zoe Adams about her book titled The Legal Concept of Work, just published in 2022 from the Oxford University Press. Um, This book, as you might expect from the title, uh, explores the role of law and legal concepts, um, but deals with some really big questions that impact both our historical understanding and very much our practical experience and understanding today of what is work, what counts as work, what doesn't, why. Um, This book I found really fascinating, answered a whole bunch of questions I already had and answered questions I hadn't really realized I should be asking. So Zoe, I'm really pleased to welcome you to the podcast to tell us about your book. Yes, thank you for having me. We are obviously going to get into the details of the book, um, but before we dive straight in, could you maybe introduce yourself a bit and explain why you decided to write this book?
0: Um, Yes, of course. So um, my name's Zoe. Um, I'm originally from um, a very small, I would say village, but it isn't really a village, just a very sort of isolated area in the Lake District. Um, And I studied law at Pembroke College, Cambridge. Um, And then I went on to do a master's in Florence, and then I came back and did my PhD again at Pembroke. And since then, I um, started a junior research fellowship, which is like a four year research position at King's College, Cambridge. And that is where I now work. And I am currently the admissions tutor at King's College, but I am also a law fellow, and I'm also a lecturer at the law faculty. Um, because Cambridge works slightly unusually and that you usually have more than one contract, one with the college and one with the university. And the reason that I I decided to write this book was was that it it was an outgrowth of my PhD. So my PhD thesis was about the legal concept of the wage and it explored the nature of the wage in capitalism and the various ways in which um, the law's conceptualization of the wage impacts on what function the wage payment actually performs. And this um, PhD thesis actually um, formed the basis of my first book, which is Labour and the Wage, A Critical Perspective. And it was actually through that research that I realized how important the way the law conceptualizes work actually is. And how our understanding, not just of the value of different activities, but of different people and about the function of different people changes so much depending on how we conceptualise work. But also the legal system's conceptualization of it has an independent effect. And there isn't that much um, in the legal literature about the independent role of legal concepts. And I come very much from a Marxist perspective. So anyone who has read my work in the past will know that my my orientation towards law is very critical. Um, I see law as constitutive of capitalism. And I felt that this was an under-elaborated aspect of law's relationship with capitalism and with work. And because I'd already done a sort of a genealogical study that spanned um, from the 1300s until the present day, I knew where the information was. I just didn't yet know quite what I was going to find. So I felt like I was in a really good position. And so when I applied for my research position at Kings, that's what I that's what I presented. What I said I wanted to do, and yeah, that that was what I did. <laughs> very
1: satisfying that it worked out um, as you applied, um, and very much makes sense in the context of your previous work. So thank you for sort of introducing us to the project in that way. Um, obviously. I think it's worth starting with a little bit of a disclaimer. Um, the book has fabulous amounts of detail and covers rather a large time period. So while that's great for readers, it does mean that we are going to do a bit of a whistle stop tour, a highlights tour maybe, of some of the key arguments um, and probably not going to be able to get into every single piece of the book. Uh, so listeners, that's a little bit of a warning for you, uh, but hopefully we will still do the main point some justice. Um, And I'd love to start with this idea of kind of the law and work being, well, the law influencing concepts of work. Um, But that in some senses suggests a very close relationship, which certainly in some of the examples is very clear. Um, But you also make a point early on in the book that I think is really interesting about the law being abstracted from work as well. And this having a really important um, influence and impact. And by work in this case, um, helpfully, I am clarifying per um, our pre-interview discussion. Uh, I do mean work in the sense being the activity and organization of productive activity. Um, so can you tell us about this kind of
0: abstraction and what impact you think it has? Um, yes, I'm really grateful for you picking up on this because I think it's really important. So the, the idea of law abstracting from social relations is really fundamental to my work. So there's a general point there about the law being necessarily abstracted from concrete situations, but also the power relations that underpin the formal appearances in capitalism. It is a depoliticized form of social regulation. And so it conceptualizes people um, in abstraction from the structural positions in which they exist. And so just to give an example, the law regulates relations through the lens of um, interpersonal exchanges between individuals. Well, we all know that that is um, incredibly reductive and actually um, we are all people that occupy a particular um, class position, for example, a gendered position. And so the law inherently abstracts. And I think that's a really important point to get across. But... The law, when it comes to regulate a particular feature of social reality or a particular social phenomena, um, tends to engage in abstraction as a means towards facilitating its regulatory role. So what I mean by this is that the law needs to develop um, a a law that is applicable to um, work when you take into consideration that work manifests in a multiplicity of different forms. So it needs to reduce that complexity and basically isolate its distinctive features. And that's how you get a law of work rather than a law of academic work, a law of manual work, a law of mining, so that the law can have maximum use um, and be adaptable. Um, And so that means that the law necessarily ignores or obscures a lot of the nuances that exist in the different types of activity that it regulates because it regulates it through this lens of an abstract concept of work. But there is a broader political point about this process of abstraction that isn't just about sort of the necessity that the law has for facilitating ease of decision making, consistency in the application of rules and things like that. And that is that the law as a system of regulation um, legitimizes what is an inherently unequal system. And so it abstracts in a particular way. It presents a particular image of socio-economic relations. Now, um, and this is an image where everyone is fundamentally equal and free. Now, in the area of work, most specifically, we see the falsity of that, because that is where you see the inequality between labor and capital most acutely. And I think that creates a tension in the law as it relates to work, because you have the inherently abstract nature of juridical discourse. And then you have the fundamental inequalities of power, which really drive what the law is trying to do. It's trying to mediate those power relations. Um, And I think this is really important for understanding how the law has developed certain proxies. So how it has been able to, for example, identify the risk of exploitation or the risk of power imbalances without actually acknowledging the existence of the class system. Um, And one way it does this is through the contract of employment, because the contract of employment says, okay, we have a formally equal relationship between um, juridical subjects, but there is a power imbalance in that. But the law doesn't say the power imbalance comes from the fact that workers are systematically excluded from the means of production. Instead, it says there are implied duties of loyalty and cooperation and obedience in this contract that creates a situation of inequality for which the law then compensates. So it re-rationalizes that power relation in a particular way. Now that in itself is an act of abstraction because it is, it's distorting the reality of the power relation to which the law is trying to respond. But what I think I'm trying to get at in my book in particular is how this is an enduring problem. It's it's inherent in the law's relationship with capitalism and indeed in labor law. But it has very different effects depending on the concrete organization of work and the conditions of the labor market. So in a context in which workers are relatively protected from socioeconomic risk, there's adequate public services, there's sort of a partial decommodification of labor power. The scope for power to be exercised out with the boundaries of the contract of employment is much narrower. It still exists, but it's much narrower. So the fact that the law doesn't see that is less significant. Today, by contrast, in a context of very, very limited social service provision, highly commodified labor power, where labor markets are highly casualized and people are an immediate economic threat because of their class or economic position. The fact that the law can only see power through the lens of a contract actually becomes really important. It means, for example, that it it tends not to recognize where the power comes from in a relationship like in the gig economy, which is presented as one in which is one between equals, a service provider and an app um, or an app company. And equally, I think that a lot of the techniques developed to identify other risks, again, become a lot less effective in a context where everybody is forced to do what they need to do to survive. And I give lots of examples in my book, for example, of um, the way in which the law requires um, there to be explicit instructions, or it looks for the employer's power in direct instructions or express rules. Well, nobody needs to tell me to do X, Y, and Z because I'm constantly terrified if I just don't do everything I I can to do what I think will please my employer, I might not have my contract renewed. I might not get a promotion because of cutthroat competition and casualized academic labor markets. So this point about abstraction actually goes a lot further. And it's about this enduring feature of law and labor law and the particular consequences it can have in particular historical junctures due to particular factors of socioeconomic organisation and policy making and, and even legal developments. So let's take it a
1: little bit further and look more broadly at the relationship between law, in particular, as you just said, labour law and capitalism as a system. How do
0: we understand that relationship? So I think it's really important to engage in two levels of analysis here. So I think we need to engage at the structural level. And at that point, we need to recognize law as a particular form of social regulation, which is actually constitutive of and inherent in capitalism. And by by that, I mean, so um, the essence of capitalism is the pursuit of surplus value. That's only possible if um, a large proportion of the population are systematically excluded from the means of production. It is that exclusion that brings into being market mediation. So the, the generalized, generalized wage dependence, but also generalized exchange. Now, generalized exchange is predicated on a particular subjectivity. People need to see themselves and others as equally free to engage in exchange free from coercion. That's why prices are able to coordinate behavior. That's why it appears as an efficient means to allocate resources, etc., etc and that subjectivity is the subjectivity which i think of as legal subjectivity that 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 belief in everybody's autonomy and this basic level of equality and i think this has really important consequences because it shapes the entire structure of the major normative system of the institutionalized power, which we call law. Now, I know a lot of people say, oh, they had law in, I don't know, in pre-capitalist societies. Well, no, they had a form of institutionalized power, but it assumed a very different form. And what I'm trying to get across is that the legal form of social regulation is actually very distinctive to the unique social organization of capitalism. Now, to, to elaborate from that towards labor law, the problem is that in order for that image of the world to be sustainable, there has to be some way of, of obscuring or legitimizing the basic reality that that subjectivity, that belief in freedom and equality is predicated on systematic inequality and unfreedom. And those conditions, the, the, the systematic inequality, actually empowers one class in society to exercise power in ways that might be harmful. In other words, to act in a way that makes it seem like, oh, they're not equal, and actually to to interfere with the reproduction of the system, and so it actually becomes obstructive for capital accumulation. So I think one of the things that's really important to recognise is this system of regulation, this unique form of regulation, is inherently contradictory because it's predicated on social relations that generate behavior that systematically negates it so i think actually there's an imperative internal to what law is that involves controlling or regulating power and that's where i think we we start to understand labor law now if we switch to a historical perspective we can't really say well labor law is this thing that's determined by capitalism that's not what i'm saying but i'm saying labor law is a historically specific example of a function that is really necessitated by the laws form and so necessitated by the form of capitalism itself. But the development of this legal form and the development of labor law, it it takes place through the concrete struggles and conflicts that emerge as capitalism develops. And so as it emerges from um, these, these contradictory social relations. So it's a very complex picture. So while I'm, telling, while I'm trying to separate the structural and the um, historical um, dimensions, really they're closely interrelated because everything develops in historical time. But what's really important to recognize is that this framework of analysis actually allows us to distinguish between the essential bits of law and labor law, what it does, um, its, it's sort of its form, and the historically contingent ways in which it is manifest. So what I'm not saying is that um, unfair dismissal law is inherent in capitalism, absolutely not. That's the product of conflicts and struggles. But you can see how it responds to a need internal to the law in the sense that it helps to mitigate or helps to rebalance the scales between an employer and and a worker. Um, And we can trace historically how these different rules have developed, but also how their understanding is shaped by the basic form of law. So the in answer to your question, really, the relationship between law, labor law and capitalism is one of constitution in the sense that I think it's an inherent part of the way capitalism self-reproduces, but it's also a historical one that we really need to study concretely because there's... There's no necessity in the particular way in which law develops or labor law develops. And you can imagine a fairly defective capitalist system in which there isn't much labor law, in which, in which the social conditions aren't conducive to the struggles that bring it into being. How long that system would last is an open question. But it's re- the reason that this is important is that it helps us see well, law is, 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 is very much bound up with capitalism. Labour law is part of the process by which capitalism is sustained and reproduced and legitimised. So while we might see labour law as, yes, advancing the interests of the workers, it's only doing so within the confines of a capitalist system. And that's a really important thing to think about because it makes us cautious about over-relying on law as a means towards, say, emancipation and social transformation. But it's also really empowering because it allows us to see, well, okay, there are limits to what law can do in capitalism and there are certain things it, it tends to do, but there's also a lot of scope for variation. And the more we understand about how law works, how labor law works, um, the more we can understand about the scope that might exist for manipulating it and manipulating it in ways, for example, that help bring about political conditions conducive to more radical change. So um this is why I think this combination of a structural and a historical understanding of the law's relationship with capitalism is really useful.
1: So that's a fabulous um summary that picks up a ton of points uh, that are in the book in lots of detail. So thank you very much for that answer. Um and in fact a lot of points that I'm going to pick up on um kind of as we go throughout this. Um and obviously as a historian myself kind of my one of my particular interests is these um, historical contexts and how they shape things. Um, And so I am going to pick sort of one out. And of course, that is uh, committing the cardinal sin of picking out one thing when, of course, it is many things um, that have a relationship. But in this idea of thinking about how labour law was created, um, the kind of legacies of it that are still with us, rather than, oh, well, that happened historically. That's not related to today. Um, One of the elements that you trace in the book is the idea of master-servant relationships and that that being one of the influences um, within still today our current labor law. Um, Can you tell us about that particular sort of historical context and conception and what influence it's had?
0: Yeah, I can, and in in order to do do this properly, I think it's really important to clarify master servant. So, um, I don't know um if the listeners will be familiar with *Downton Abbey*, but that's the that's what people call to mind when you talk about master and servant. Whereas for lawyers, what comes to mind is the specific set of legislation enacted from the late eighteenth into the early nineteenth century that was called the *Master and Servant Act*, and then the relations they regulated. But actually, that isn't what I think is most interesting. So I think, I think of master and servant as sort of the, the paradigm case of master and servant as the system of labor relations that emerged with the decline of the feudal order. And this is one where in, in place of the serf having access to the land as his means of subsistence, so working the land for himself and his master or his lord, You have a situation where enclosures are proceeding and actually it's no longer it's no longer um, in um, the ruling class's best interest to have um, the productive class with access to and rights in land. And so you have this situation where you need to be able to obtain labor to work the land. But they if they haven't got access to it, how are they going to live? And the master servant relationship sort of substitutes access to land with these obligations of loyalty and protection on behalf of the master. And the typical idea of that is that the ma- is, is that the servant lives in the master's household. And this is this is not just domestic service. I should emphasise a lot of this is in an agricultural context. And basically, in exchange for their loyal service, which is an on it's not working nine to five. This is doing what they are told when when it is wanted, Um, then they have protection from risk and just basically a guaranteed right to subsistence, but not as we we think of it today in terms of a guaranteed wage that you can use to buy things, but just that they will be looked after in the household. Now, I think this is really interesting. If we start with this as sort of recognising the origins of master and servant in feudalism, But then how it was changed with the imperatives that were coming into being with enclosures and and as capitalism was developing, because the master servant relationship, the language and the, the legal system devises this concept of service, which which approximates the concept used in society of service, but has its distinctive features. Because it emerges in the context of a specific set of legislation from the 14th century onwards, in which there is a compulsory, there's a duty to work on anyone without access to the independent means of subsistence. So in other words, people who don't have access to land. So you have this legal concept of service, and it sort of becomes an integral feature of the law. But that law then evolves itself, but it's also operating in a fundamentally different social and economic environment over time. So you have have an order that very much resembles feudalism, becoming increasingly capitalist, or at least increasingly governed by the imperatives of capitalist society. And this changes the nature and dynamics of the relationship significantly, as well as the effects of the law. And it also creates imperatives to create new features in that law. And so what is really interesting is to look at how these ideas morphed, how they were corrupted by the law, and how they came to perform different and potentially um, contrary functions, um, and how also how the language then became so... So um, completely um, inappropriate for a capitalist society because of the connotations of subordination. So we have, interestingly, in the Master and Servant Act 1867 the legislature decides that the terms employer and workmen are more appropriate because we want to get away from this idea that there is, a, there is an inequality between the parties because the whole point of labor law is to put the parties on an equal footing. So you have new language and we move away from the language of master and servant. But the structure of the law, the law never, the law always builds the new from the old. And so the concepts, ideas, and even doctrines that applied in the past are still deeply embedded in our modern understanding. And it shapes not only how the courts interpret things, but also what the legislature thinks is appropriate to do in different contexts. And I think it's really, really interesting to trace that over time and look at how master and servant continues to influence assumptions and with what effects. So just to give an example, master and servant... In, in the 14th to the 16th centuries was very much predicated on this idea of mutuality. And I'm not idealizing this at all. I'm not saying they were all happy and, and, and servants were, were well-kept. But there was this idea of quid pro quo that you have a duty to work for someone else, but in exchange, we will look after you. Um, and it's interesting how that concept has actually been distorted over time So it was used in the master and servant legislation of the early 19th century as a way of excluding people from certain rights of labor law. Um, But it's also interesting how it continues. I mean, we have a test of mutuality of obligation today. I say test. It's really a notion that the English courts use when assessing whether a relationship should be within the scope of labor law. And it's this idea that if you don't have mutual ongoing obligations of 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 work and and, um work and payment then that it isn't really within the scope of labor law but it's come to actually um confuse almost a normative ideal with with the expectations so that you exclude from the scope of labor law people who aren't lucky enough to have those benefits but what, what has been lost there is the way that the law used to make sure that that mutuality existed. It used to say, well, you can't have someone exploiting someone else's labor without providing these protections. And actually, the, the, ironically, the very idea of mutuality is really what labor law tries to achieve. But the laws distorted it because of the way it applies it as a test, as a precondition for accessing rights rather than as the normative outcome. Um, and I think it's really useful to trace all these ideas. It's also useful to see how, despite abandoning the language of master and servant, there are certain assumptions that the courts have about what is legitimate for employers to do, which very much hark back to those different socioeconomic conditions. And that, that helps obscure and legitimize ongoing power relations because it makes it appear as natural and inevitable in employment that the employer should have power without ever having to think what are the structural, what's the structural basis of this power? How does the law augment and shape it? Um, So that's, that's really, I mean, the master and servant is just, as you say, just one example of this. But I think it's really useful because if we are able to understand those historical origins, it's actually very, very empowering because we can say, well, this idea still exists. But we can present a slightly different interpretation of it, which is consistent with how it was understood in the past, that might actually be beneficial for workers. And this sort of understanding means that we can sort of denaturalize assumptions and almost benefit from this history and this embedding within the law by exposing, by problematizing, and by shaping.
1: Mm. And there's, I mean, literally nothing we can do if we don't understand why we have what we have now. So no matter what we decide to do with the knowledge, having the knowledge is an important first step um, as this historical investigation uncovers. Um, And in Um, a similar
0: sort of vein. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and it's particularly important in law because um, the, 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 the rationality of law presents law as just the product of legislative minds. So Parliament intended to do X, Y and Z. And I think this sort of analysis is really important for saying, well, okay, Parliament may have done, but it used legal concepts and legal concepts embed information from the past. And this is how you have historical Mm -hmm. continuity. So I think it's really, really important in the legal concept to understand how Mm -hmm. we got here in that broad sense.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, And so I'd like to ask you about another uh, one of these threads, a thing that happened historically, but still very much impacts us today, maybe in ways we don't realise. Um, and the particular one I'd like to ask in this case is um, regulations and laws around factory time. We don't yeah, so work this in is... factories today, but you demonstrate very clearly that this is not just something that happened in the past.
0: No, and this is really interesting. So I will be completely honest that I, I think, I wonder whether this is the same for a lot of labor lawyers, but... The Factory Acts to me seem like the least interesting of labour law history. I didn't touch upon them in my first book because I thought, oh, they're not really concerned with anything but health and safety. It's not that interesting. But actually, it's absolutely fascinating to understand the significance of the Factory Acts. And I mean, Marxists know the significance of the Factory Acts. I mean, it occupies the entirety of chapter 10, I think, in Capital Volume 1. Um, and so Marx clearly realised how significant they were. But in the history of English capitalism, of course, they were also really the first, I would say, capitalistic labor regulation in the sense that they were oriented towards protecting workers rather than just disciplining them. Now, we shouldn't overemphasize that because there's always a disciplining element in protection. But I think they were more of a response to very particular capitalistic conditions in a way that previous legislation wasn't. and in a way, because of that, they sort of crystallize the beginnings of cla- real class conflict of the, the antagonism that exists between the imperative of accumulation and the imperative towards maintaining society and social need. And and so it's actually a very, very interesting from that perspective. But what is particularly interesting is how... Long living or long lasting, the conception of work that developed through those conflicts has been in labor law. So, if you think about it, until the law needs to regulate something, it doesn't need a conception of it. And the law never had really had a chance to regulate capitalistic work beforehand. Now, there was master and servant legislation, it's regulating the relationship, many of which will have assumed capitalistic dynamics. But this was the first time that the law really needed a conception of work, independent from service. And by work, I mean, is what the employer is purchasing in the labor market. What does he get for that wage? And it's it's no surprise that where the conflicts and struggles over working time emerged is where the focus was when it came to understanding what work was and when it came to coining and, and developing a conception of work. And so gradually, in the Factory Act, we see crystallizing this, this understanding of work, which is very much specific to the conditions of work in factories. And, okay, maybe at a particular period of capitalism's development, that was a big proportion of capitalistic work. But even then it wasn't. Even then there was tons of outwork going on. There were other industries in which the work just simply wasn't Man, large-scale manufacture. But still, this is where the major conflicts developed from, this is where the instability developed from, so this is where the impetus for regulation came and where the concept originated. And so embedded in the law's conception of work at this time was a very physical understanding of work, very routine, very ritualistic, and very much linked with this understanding of presence within, within the property of the employer. Under not not so much under control in an abstract sense, but but on the employer's premises, using the employer's machinery, and and this and and doing very routine physical tasks that require you to be in a particular place. Now, fast forward to um, the working time um, regulations, which are actually influenced by EU law, interestingly enough. But you have a definition of work and um, that definition has been interpreted in a way that is remarkably similar to how it developed in the context of the the factories. We still expect certain things about presence, about being required to do something. We still associate it with active, active bodily movements. So there's a line of case law actually relating to minimum wages, but it's very similar because you need a concept of work to measure how much you get paid, where people engaged in, say, care work or in intellectual work really struggle to show they are working because a lot of what they do looks inactive. I mean... I think sitting and thinking, for example, or just being ready, ready to go somewhere or just being alert in case somebody needs something. None of that really fits with the way work was organized in in the period of the factories. And so the law still struggles with that. And I think revealing this context for where the concept of work came from is really important. If we think about the the changes that have taken place in work since then and why it might no longer be appropriate now i mean i've skipped over a big period of development because from this from this factory era we also we did then have the development of white white collar work we had the development of service work and the shops are really interesting for this because the concept of work and working time that was deployed in legislation concerning shop and shop hours was subtly different because of course working shops is different and so we we get an understanding of control more in terms of of presence, and then of course you have the developments in the in the 1940s where you have vertical integration and control manifests more through bureaucratic procedures and express rules. So also in the working time regulation is this dimension that of um, work is some, it, it relates to obligations you're contractually required to do, where that contractual obligation manifests in the right of the employer to tell you what to do. But interestingly it still doesn't cover the things that I like I mentioned before where someone says oh zoe would you mind marking this extra um this 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 exam um you don't have to and i think well i do have to because i might not get i might not have my contract renewed if i don't say yes um the time i spend on that well the law really struggles to categorize that as work and i think one of the things that um really helps us understand why is by looking at well what was work like when the law's conception of work developed? how have these these assumptions been reproduced and 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 um sort of reinforced over time um so i I'm actually very very glad I decided to read the factory um go back into the history of factory <laughs> legislation because I was actually very surprised about how long lasting those assumptions are and um, In one of the case studies in the book, I actually interview academics from Cambridge and I found what was amazing was how I was asking them, like, so if you're if you're out on a walk and you have this genius idea that then becomes an article, are you working? And their responses were so influenced by ideas reproduced through this image of work as as articulated in the factory acts. And so I found I found that fascinating as well. Yeah, that's in fact
1: why I picked that out as an example to ask you about, um, because uh, I certainly have spent a lot of time in academia, I know a lot of our listeners have, um, and exactly that sort of thing of, well, does thinking work count? But what about the idea that you get in the shower or right before you fall asleep? Like, hang on a second, how do we think about that was very much a question that um, I certainly didn't think of as being answerable when I started the book and was very pleased and kind of felt like a light bulb went off going, oh, now I get why that's a why that's something we have difficulty um, conceptualizing. So it's a really useful example, I think, in general, and of course, um, given our kind of particular audience.
0: Um, I also think employers should pay attention because mm. a lot of the answers I personally have to it. So I would feel like I'm working if I'm sat at my computer, even if I know that what I'm writing is complete trash. Um, However, Mm. I wouldn't feel like I was working if I went for a walk and was really thinking hard about what the structure of my, my article is going to be or thinking about how to better phrase something in a lesson. Mm -hmm. and it actually creates bizarre incentives because it means I will probably be more likely to think right I should be working so I need to sit at my desk and clearly I am doing nothing productive whereas had I done what I thought might be a break and gone for a walk the employer might have had the benefit of Mm -hmm. a lot more productivity (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. yep no absolutely um and obviously, in some senses, right, you talked at the beginning, kind of we have these multiple um, identities and things that influence sort of how we work as labour, how the law relates to us. Um, And this is one of obviously the problems of abstraction is kind of erasing a lot of that nuance. Um, And so one nuance that we've just talked about is kind of being nerds who have jobs as professional thinkers, to some degree, if you want to call academics that. Um, But obviously, another difference is kind of whether you have a factory job or not. Um, But one that we've kind of briefly mentioned, and I think the example you talked a little bit about just now around caring is probably bringing up for people is, of course, um, gender, and the idea of gendered forms of work and the law's influence on that. Um, But as I think it should be pretty clear by now, um, listeners and readers of the book, it's not just law kind of as if it was some neutral force that I don't know, came down from the sky with no historical context. Um, there's the influence of capitalism and history. Uh, so how can we bring all those strands together to understand the influence of law
0: on this idea of gendered forms of work? So I think, I think we can separate this out because I think it's really important to look at the, the, the gendering role of law. But actually what I wanted to do in the book was show how the law's concept of work is gendered. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably the more novel contribution of my book. And actually, I devote the entirety of chapter six to this issue um, because I think there is a tendency to think about this in terms of the legacy of law um, restricting women's access to certain jobs and things. And while that's, of course, relevant, I think one of the more important things to think about. So, again, I'm going to I'm going to go at two levels, I think. So structurally speaking. I think it's really important to recognize how the same process that brings into being the power between capital and labor, the exclusion of workers from the means of production and the generalization of exchange that 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 brings into being, also brings into being a historically specific split between the activities required um, to reproduce life and all that time that has to be devoted um, to producing something of value for capital, basically. So, at the level of the household, that is a split between wage earning and care. Now, I think it's really important to recognize how that is a structural feature of capitalism and how the historical organization of social reproduction through the institution of the household meant that that power dynamic, that dynamic, and it's a power dynamic because those who devote more time to wage earning are in a much more powerful position in a capitalist society than those who devote more time to unpaid work because the the latter don't have access to a wage and and money is the source of freedom and independence in capitalism so it's a power dynamic there it gives one group greater power than another societally and also At the level of the household. And so the reason that that becomes a gendered power dynamic, whereby men are are relatively more powerful than women, is to do with the way that social reproduction and the household interlock with the process of biological reproduction and the way those roles embedded themselves and the way in which feudal society positioned men in a position to take advantage of their property rights so as to position them as the money makers so this the the you might say that the precise gendered form of this this power dynamic is contingent or historically specific, but the this the fact that it is a gendered dynamic is not because of the way it interacts with biological reproduction, which is inherently gendered. Um, but the reason that that is important is because it shows you that the law, because the law played a part in bringing into being, that's the the generalization of exchange and therefore this split between time to be devoted to reproduction and time to be devoted to producing for capital. The law is integrally linked with this emergence of this gendered power dynamic and this gendered power dynamic explains why there are barriers in society and why there have historically been barriers in society towards women's labor market participation, why men have been able to dominate high-paid jobs, why men have been able to take advantage of their property and their political role to create laws that disadvantage women. But then there is another important element to this. And I want to go back to what I was saying about factory work. So I said, I said that the concept of work um, developed in a context predicated primarily on manual labor, where work was performed in this specific way. But it also emerged in a context where women were largely excluded. So it was dominated by men. So the factory, the, the process of factory reform was actually instrumental in, in, in achieving this. But not only that, but it was developed in a context in which the majority of care-related work was performed outside of the market. And the type of work that was performed in the market, therefore, did not have the same properties um, as care. Now, care is dynamic. It's interactive. It's, um, it's emotional. It doesn't manifest in the same way as, say, manual work. And we see the same with a lot of forms of intellectual labor, which had not yet been fully commodified when labor law developed. And so what, what is really important about that is that the law's assumptions about what work looks like was developed in a context in which a distinction was being drawn between work as that regular, regulatable thing and non-work or care. And so that had a profound impact when care-related practices did start to be commodified or commodified on a greater scale. Um, because it affected how the law then, then measured the amount of work that was done in a care setting. I'm using care very broadly here to refer to generally reproductive activities, cooking, cleaning, looking after people, things like that. And this, I mean, it's amazing to see how it's also influenced our understanding of skill, because skill is a function of scarcity. And one of the things about care is because it has to be regularly undertaken by a large proportion of the population if society is going to exist. The skills required for care aren't scarce they're generally abundant, so they tend not to be seen as valuable, and they also tend it makes it difficult for occupational groups to to mobilise and make them scarce. I mean we have examples of the professionalisation of say teaching and nursing, which does to some extent by trying to distinguish between Generic care and education in the household and professionalize, but even then the, the the professionalization process never has never been been the same as it has in relation to say medicine or law, which were historically dominated by men and and didn 't have the same proper caring properties in terms of the activities and which have enjoy a much higher status and I think this is really really useful in um sort of breaking down and deconstructing arguments in cases and really trying to show that when you say that something isn't gendered, the decision about work isn't gendered because it's purely based on questions of skill and efficiency, you've got to go one step further and say, yes, but our understanding of skill is predicated on an organization of work which which makes caring not look skilled in the particular marketable sense in which we understand it in capitalism. And so all these apparently neutral words that we use in the Equality Act, in the Equal Pay provisions of the Equality Act, to objectively value work independently from gender, are themselves gendered. Work, the concept of work as it exists in that statute and as it is deployed in legal discourse, is gendered for all these reasons. And I think that's really important because it goes beyond thinking about gender inequality in terms of the continual embedding of historical disadvantage because it looks at how it can be encoded into our very discourse and concepts. And um, I found that really, 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 really useful for recognising the limits of the laws that we enact to combat gender inequality. It made me understand in a much deeper and more fundamental sense the limits of equal pay law, for example. Um, And it also made me think or try and think creatively about, well, how can we reimagine a concept, a legal concept? that might do something different how can we problematize this in a, in a pra- pragmatic way
1: hmm. well i am certainly going to ask you about kind of um what ways forward might be um but i do want to uh, maybe keep exploring some of the problems first before we get there so we can end on a nice optimistic note um as you've sort of mentioned a little bit so far uh, certain chapters are obviously devoted to certain things um, and Towards the second half of the book, you go in-depth into a number of case studies, or sort of particular kinds of work and the problems arising there, which listeners at this point should um, not be surprised that they deal with some of the questions that we've already been discussing about kind of how do we conceptualize which things count as work in terms of skill, what things count in terms of work in terms of time. Um, But obviously, choosing kind of in-depth case studies is always a really tricky question. So I was wondering if we could. Kind of examine sort of your behind the scenes thought process a bit. Which case studies did you choose, and how did you decide on these particular ones?
0: So, um, a slightly glib answer is that the publishers wouldn't let me go to five hundred words, so I couldn't include everything. Uh, five hundred pages, even, so I couldn't include everything I wanted. So that played a part. But more <laughs> systematically, more systematically, I wanted to choose case studies that addressed different, so work that performs different functions, so work that contributes to capital accumulation in different ways. So the, um, the, the case studies in the book are um, the work of authors of fiction in the publishing industry, um, the work of doctors, um, so medical work, the work of academics, and um, the work of shop assistants. And the idea here was, firstly, I wanted to contrast with the manual work in the factories. I wanted to look at how the the relatively later commodification of intellectual labor might impact on labor law's inability to properly regulate intellectual forms of labor today. And um, book publishing was a really useful case study for me because, authors are not seen as employees. And indeed, in a legal sense, they're not employees. But they are, authors are often wage dependent and dependent on meeting the needs of their publishers to live. And so I felt that they were in a structurally similar position to those that labour law protects. And I thought this was a really interesting to look at, well, can we explore the nature and organisation of this work in more detail to understand why nobody ever suggests categorizing them as employees today. So that was that was why I went for that one. but I'm still in the realm of work that produces a commodity there and I wanted to look at also at work that contributes to capital accumulation more indirectly by producing something that needs to be generally consumed um, if capitalism is to continue and in order to be generally consumed generally has to be made available either with some support of the state or, or not necessarily at cost through the market. And, I, and the reason that I, I focused on academia and um, medical, uh, medical work was partly because I had been, my personal experience of academic work made me think, what, made me very, very aware of how inadequate the labor law framework is for us. Um, and how a lot of the right formal, formal rights we do have just don't work. And then in relation to medical work, the, the class struggle plays out so amazingly in relation to the struggle for doctors. And it has a gender dimension because the way that, um, that, that doctors struggled to establish a particular dominant understanding of disease and illness that effectively delegitimized the work of women. So that they that then then what had once been in the realm of generic care became a distinction between what women do in the home and what professional doctors do um, in the market, and also because of the integral role of health in maintaining a capitalist or any society, I knew that the influence of that particular group of workers over the state was particularly profound, and I wondered whether that that might influence the position of those workers, how that work comes to be understood, how it comes to be regulated. I wondered whether the unique function of medical working capitalism might, might, might generate contradictions that labour law doesn't necessarily cater for particularly well. So it seemed like a really, really good case study to, to really highlight my point of what is the effect of the law abstracting concretely different forms of work and functions of work within a single category and then shop assistants so i was very aware already that um of the dichotomy in treatment between shop assistants and factory workers despite them being called um or or compared to factory workers frequently but also i wanted to look at realization work because realization is is slightly interesting because in in marx's schema it's not it's not productive work, but it's clearly indispensable to the 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 extraction of surplus value and it's also a form of work that is distinctive to capitalism. It's not like a form it, you you simply do not have to sell things in a society that isn't mediated by exchange it's not a precondition for for societal reproduction so realization work I found was very interesting, and it was also interesting because it seems to be one area in which. I felt the push towards labor saving seemed to go a long way because it's an unproductive cost. And so um, I thought that was interesting. And I thought it was also interesting because partly because of that, it's also one of the forms of work that has been most transformed by technology and algorithmic technologies in particular. And that really helped me understand contemporary manifestations of managerial power. Um, So that's why I selected them. Um, and, um, I could have chosen other case studies, but I felt they really epitomize all the, the, the different, I mean, obviously you can categorize in a multiplicity of ways, but I felt it broke down different types of work really well rather than just being industry specific case studies focusing on say how the class struggle has played out in bootmaking in in IT things like that it allowed me to go further than that and look not just about the specific specificities of the class struggle in those contexts but also how the nature of the work itself influences how the law evolves and how the law affects it because it isn't simply that I mean, you might have a form of work that simply doesn't generate many conflicts, in which case it's not going to bear its imprint on legal development very much. And that's definitely the case for creative work. It just hasn't shaped labor law. But that in itself is interesting because the fact it hasn't means that the the industry has developed without that influence. And, um, and so it, it's potentially shaped employment structures in that sphere. So um, I found that was, I found that, that, that these case studies for those reasons were really, really useful within my my um, word limit <laughs> um, to get across the points that I really wanted to get across.
1: Hmm. I, I want to um, kind of pick up on one of the things that you just mentioned, the idea of um, managerial practices, because a lot of what we've talked about so far um, very much focuses on the worker, on structures. Um, creation of law and some of the institutions that do that, like Parliament. Um, but we haven't really talked directly as much about kind of the companies, the bosses, the managers. Um, what you know? How do these historical kind of legacies, I guess, or assumptions baked into the law because of history, influence managerial practices? How do we sort of think about? how they are um, conceiving of work or influencing the conceptions of work in that kind of particular uh, placement, I suppose?
0: I think that's a really good question. But I do also want to say that the 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 causal causal flow is both ways. So it isn't simply that the law influenced managerial practices. The law is profoundly shaped by managerial practices because Mm. managerial practices are the form in which capital's power over labor concretely manifests. So it's the manifestation of what labor law is getting at. So understandings of work in law are inherently shaped by managerial practices. Um, so I think that's a really important point to bear in mind. But thinking about it the other way, well, at a very basic level, it's it's, it's evident in throughout the history of capitalism and labor law that the the... The perception of employers of labor law influences decisions about the form of the contract and the form of work organization. So, for example, a very, very stark example is, um, and this is linked with the poor law as well. So because um, because of the way in which um, the concept of service um, was understood to involve complete control over the worker for an unlimited period of time, um, within the framework of an annual contract, you've got employers um, in the sort of the 17th and 18th centuries um, accepting a week out of the year so that they wouldn't qualify as servants, so they wouldn't get, get various protections, and also that, that would reduce the, the, the costs borne by the employer as well. Um, but you also see over time how the employers adapt to this understanding of service as um, sort of indeterminate obligations with no time limit, so as to produce much clearer rules about work. So um, and also how how it pre- created incentives towards introducing working time limits, even if those limits were sort of like five a.m. to eleven p.m. Because if it's clear that the servant cannot be called on overnight, then they're not a servant in law in the sense it's relevant to certain statutes. And you see that historically. Now, what I, really, I really don't want to, to make anyone think that this is the only consideration. Because... The, it. Firms, um, employers have to weigh up things about legal advantages and disadvantages of certain decisions versus practicalities and other advantages and disadvantages. And someone isn't going to simply use a particular form of contact to avoid labor law um, or a particular form of work organization if it doesn't work for their business. But what we do see this over time, and it's it's also interesting to see Um, how um, it influences the framing of contracts, but also it it creates different incentives in terms of investment as well. So, I mean, a lot of the investment in recent years has been in algorithmic technologies. And one of the things algorithmic technologies enable is the exercise of much more diffuse forms of power. And, um, I mean, I don't know if any of the listeners will be familiar with Uber and Deliveroo and other sort of gig economy companies, but the way that they um direct or tell their employees what or their workers i should say what to do um is not usually by saying you need to do this trip it's by saying if you do this trip you will get an extra x amount of money or your this is a high peak period don't stop that sort of thing where it's a nudge and in that way the 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 employers avoiding sort of the the obligatory nature of instructions that would tend to indicate employment status, potentially enabling them to avoid certain labour law obligations and tax obligations, um, and so it influences investment decisions. And interestingly, that can have side effects. So they might they might think, well, is there a way we can reorganise work so that so as to obscure the power we have over workers? But that might give rise to technologies that then have all sorts of other enabling features that they can make use of in different ways. Um, There are many ways in which um, the physical and and temporal um, focus of labor law has encouraged employers to sort of in historically and today to deliberately locate work in people's homes or to um, make workers work in a dispersed manner. Um, because one that helps um, discourage organization, um, and two because again um, if if law is, is if law associates work with work in the employer's um, property, then it's really useful to find a way to make sure the worker can work remotely or or um, not in this sort of workplace setting um, so that's that's what well, that's probably the most obvious sense, but I also think that there is a much more cognitive influence in that the law signals to both to workers and employers about what is deemed legitimate and illegitimate. It signals um, what the law understands certain things to be and can almost structure how far employers go in terms of pushing what is allowed and and how how things are framed. Um, And that itself has a real impact. I mean, I'm not saying that in the university context, academics deliberately frame requests for unpaid labour as an optional request. But as we said earlier, these understandings that are embedded in the law do become embedded in the social consciousness because of the... inter and, and, and vice versa. And I think that really does change the way that people think about the work they do, what, what they will go about demanding, what they will think they can't demand... And, of course, if an if a worker thinks they can't ask for something, then that's empowering to the employer in terms of making further changes that might otherwise be challenged. So I think, yeah, I think in all these ways, it has influenced, um, influences um, firm and employers' choices. But the process, as I said at the beginning, is very much mutually interactive. You have the law responding to developments in firm organisation and managerial practice, and then then firms responding to evade the law, um, or in response to the law, then the law develops again because of the conflicts that generates. So it's a very complicated process, but um, understanding this this mutual interaction, I think, is very, very helpful. Mm, very much so. Um,
1: obviously, we sort of mentioned our particular bias in terms of the category of academic work, and you've very helpfully um, kind of given us a number of examples of ways in which uh, the impact sort of goes both ways when we talk about that kind of work. But is there anything in addition you'd like to tell us um, about the conceptualization of academic work in
0: particular from your book? I think what really astounded me, and it shouldn't have, because I have always said so I did a law degree. Most of my friends went um, into the city and got very, very well paying jobs in solicitors' firms. And I've always justified my decision that well, I want to do a job that I genuinely enjoy. I don't care about the money, and it really made me realize during this study how much the academia, modern academia, thrives from this vocational presentation of the profession. And this isn't a myth. So I think academia. That I mean, I found studying the history of the academic profession fascinating. Um, but it re- that. In certain conditions, because, because the university really was insulated at a certain time from wider developments of capitalism, and it only relatively lately, late, became incorporated into circuits of capital accumulation and started really contributing to the continuation and reproduction of capitalism, you actually got to see what a different form of academic work might look like where it is inspired by ideals that aren't intimately linked with people's position in a capitalist society, where we don't think about things in terms of, of individual competition and reputation and status. And, and there isn't that concern about employability and financial stability. And, and, and you can understand why academia was idolized for so long as a vocation rather than, rather than a job. And indeed, it wasn't even until the 1980s that, that it became incorporated within labor law frameworks. Um, and that's really, really pernicious because it has been organized on a capitalistic basis for a long time. And the more we repeat to ourselves this vocational idea, the more we feel guilty for contesting what is in reality exploitation and which in any other place would be seen as straight out for what it is. In in another job, you simply would not accept that you have to do all this unpaid labor because you because you're supposed to you're not supposed to see doing additional work for students as unpaid work. It's supposed to be what you want to do because you care about them. Similarly, the fact that you have you don't get any holidays, you spend all your free time researching is supposed to be because you love it. And to a degree, that's true, but it's always overshadowed by this financial precarity. And yet this vocational ideal really obscures that because it makes us feel guilty and ashamed for, for wanting what people in other jobs want. Now, how does this relate to the law? Well, the concept of work reinforces this because it idealizes a form of work that doesn't match the realities of work in academia. Everything is so much more subtle and nuanced here. And I mean, we do have, um, we do have um, a variety of, um, of labor rights today. And so, for example, um, I've currently got what I believe to be is COVID, um, but so I, I should be able to take time off sick. And if, if I need to take time off long-term sick, then I have a right as, a, as, as an employee. And yet in, in the academic setting, you simply cannot take those rights because the work, because the work is so individualized. If you were to cancel your teaching, it's not like that work could be done by someone else. You'd have to do it later. And that's just not feasible when you already work, say, 48 hours a week. Similarly with holidays, I have formal rights to holidays, but you don't actually, the workload is still as big if you go on holiday. So all that happens is you have to do more outside of your holiday. But equally, we're bound by the structure of the academic term. We're bound by students' needs. So even if I accepted, well, I'll just have to work harder later, you simply, there are additional restrictions on when you can take work when you can take holiday so all these rights are relatively meaningless in practice similarly we have we have long been our in our contracts as academics we are usually not paid a salary but a stipend which which is a way of decoupling the payment from the concrete work you do and historically that provided security but today all that means is the fact that that if I work my working week of 38 hours, okay, my hourly wage is above minimum wage. But if I work my actual, if I actually do the work that is required of me, then I'm paid below the minimum wage per hour I work. But I still don't, I can't claim that because I'm not a wage worker. The way that the the law evaluates it, it, it it, it doesn't work that way um so these are all the reasons why why academia is is slightly unique and and why um and why i found it very useful to to focus on academia in 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 revealing how how this particular industry or this particular context is so disadvantaged by um by the law's conception of work and the dominant understanding to wh- of work to which labor law mechanisms are adapted. Um, and it's, it's funny because it's very easy to, um, to, to expose the problems in the gig economy on the basis that a lot of these people are denied access to labor law. Much harder when you're an academic with formal access to all these rights, but they're meaningless in practice. And one of those, of course, is weak bargaining power, which affects everybody. But another is just because of the of the ideology and social relationships in which academic work is embedded and which is itself partly a product of its legal past. Um, So that was really what I wanted to get across. Mm, I think that's going to be a very familiar
1: experience to a lot of listeners. Um, And of course, uh, we don't know when listeners will be listening to this episode, but it is being recorded in February 2023, which is in the midst of some pretty massive university strikes um, in the UK, at least, where uh, obviously Zoe and I are both very familiar with the academic context there. So um, thank you very much for that answer. I think there's going to be quite a lot of people interested in it. Um, and I now get to ask the question that uh, you've sort of been teasing and I've been very excited to ask, um, and it's very well timed after that uh, description of why academic work is can be incredibly frustrating. Um, you've mentioned a few times, and of course talk about in the book, that it's not necessarily all doom and gloom, that there might be reasons to be cautiously optimistic about what can be achieved. Um, in this legal conceptualization, and with the laws that we currently have. Could you
0: invite us into that optimism? So the optimism is a general optimism. And I think it flows from the particular understanding of labor law and law that I have. And as I articulated previously, I mean, one of the things I really want to get across is the limits of law. Law is a feature of capitalism, and so it it inevitably reproduces and legitimizes its basic structure. But the contradictions inherent in that system actually make it potentially emancipatory. And by that, I do not mean that we can rely on law to, to, to change the structures of capitalism directly. But we can create conditions that are more or less conducive to political struggle, to collective organization, that do a better or worse job of obscuring the realities of exploitation or exposing them. And I think that's what really comes through from the analysis. And you can see at different periods of time that labor law labour law operates to do that in different ways and to different extents. And that is empowering because it makes us think, well, Well, how can we take advantage of this scope for contingency, for variation in exactly what sort of outcomes capitalism creates? Um, And I think, I mean, I'm sure a lot of listeners will want concrete proposals and I can give concrete proposals. But I think what my book does more is provide a structure and a framework for thinking about political strategy in which law is a component of that strategy, but by no means the central one. There is a terrible tendency in the labor law field, I think, towards thinking that labor law is the remedy for exploitation. Well, no. Labor law helps obscure sort of super added exploitation while reinforcing and legitimizing the exploitation inherent in the system. And by relying on labor law to eliminate or prevent exploitation, we actually risk discouraging more far-reaching forms of political action. We risk valorizing law and obscuring the ways in which labor law actually makes the problem worse in many ways. Um, and I think by realizing that there are these limits to law, we can start to engage with more more creatively. And by that I mean we can see our engagements with law not just instrumentally. Not just, for example, saying, "Well, if we were to restructure working time more in this way, if we were to refine this definition, if we were to introduce a presumption that prevents the courts from assuming that um, if the work is agreed to without compulsion or without concrete evidence of compulsion, it's not, it's not, it's not working time, we, we can do all those things, and that's great, and I think that will that will be beneficial for individual groups of workers. But we also can think about how we can use the opportunity of legal reform, of legal arguments, of drawing on cases to expose the political functions of law, to expose to those organizing what law is doing, to raise legal consciousness, but also to take advantage of litigation, for example, as an opportunity to show the complicity of law in what we're challenging. To, to harness existing debates and show them their own limitations. Um, and so I think this is it's a really important way of thinking about what I call a more subversive use of law, um, because it means that law is relied upon to achieve certain things. But as part of that, you are delegitimizing the law itself. And I think that's really, really important. And you are denaturalizing the law 's own assumptions now concrete concrete suggestions I make in the book relate to as I was just saying about how we could there are certain things that we could do um, in relation to working time that would be empowering for people like academics how we can we can introduce um, so, like um, the Finnish um, Working Hours Act, I think it is has an hours bank that allows you to be a lot more flexible in terms of banking hours that you do in excess of your formal week. Um, there's also the possibility of um, of requiring um, the um, explicit articulation of the hours by reference to which your salary is calculated, because a lot of us are hired just to do a job for this salary. And if, the, if the, the expected hours aren't clearly articulated, it's very difficult to see how well you're valued. And it's very difficult to see whether the changes in workloads actually means your salary is devalued over time. So there are all these things we can do. These are very minor. Um, and there are other things we can do, for example, in relation to wage regulation, because by problematizing the concept of work, we can actually begin to problematize the assumption that the amount of pay you get should be coupled with how much work you do once you realize the concept of work is gendered once you realize it it, it obscures so much of the productive activity not only that is done in society but that is done for the benefit of employers you start to think well why should workers only be paid for work in this sense why don't we have guaranteed minimum incomes from employers? I'm not advocating for a universal basic income for reasons that is probably clear um, from my first book. Um, but why don't we talk about a minimum remuneration, for example? Why don't we try and decouple work and pay? Why and, and that's something that we can do once we realize the problems associated with work. Once we've revealed that there are gendered assumptions embedded, gendered and class assumptions embedded in concepts such as work, such as skills, such as efficiency, it becomes much harder to justify having them having a central role in different aspects of labor regulation. So again, we open up the political imagination for new concepts, new ways of thinking about the structure of rights and obligations. And all these things have the benefit of one, helping in what I'm saying in exposing, problematizing um, and denaturalizing the law and its role in capitalism. And two, potentially creating conditions that are more conducive to collective action because they allow us to better empower workers, to better protect them. The more traditional function of of work, of, of labor law. Um, So that's why I'm optimistic and it is a cautious optimism because I'm not optimistic in any way about the capacity for law to be the means through which we transform the system. I am optimistic about our collective political capacities to harness law as one tool among many in that pursuit. And because of its ubiquity, because of its legitimacy, because of all the features it enjoys that makes it inherent and useful for capitalism, ironically, it is a particularly useful tool. But it absolutely is one tool to be harnessed in a broader political project and not overused and not used in a way that is insensitive to its political function.
1: Very fair caveats, but still some very uh, useful optimism. So thank you for explaining that. Um, Which leads me only to my last question, which is exactly, as you said, in the tension between uh, capitalism and academic conceptions of vocation. Um, Because my traditional last question is, what are you working on next? Which has some wonderful kind of implied requirements within it. Um, so I want to clarify that uh, what that might be, that sleep is a legitimate answer to this question. Um, doing my normal job and taking a break from thinking about massive books is a legitimate answer to this question. Um, but it is an opportunity if there is something you'd like to make
0: our audience aware of um for you to do so. Um thank you very much for that and for that caveat. Yes, I hadn't actually thought about that before, um but yes, the fact that I have moved on to another book, the fact that I have automatically thought, oh my gosh, I've got to do another one is exactly consistent with everything we've said today and in my book. Um, so um, I do have a lot of articles um, and there are a lot of articles on discrete topics that I haven't been able to put in the book um, and they are, they've are they been published in many um, and are coming out. So the, I would have liked to do a lot more focus on trade unions and strategic work in trade unions. And so I've got a couple of articles coming out in one in the Cambridge Law Journal and one in the Industrial Law Journal, um, about that. Um, And that's really important to me. I've also recently just had um, an article on aspirational work published in the Journal of Law and Political Economy, which really teases out this idea that increasingly we are required to work not for money, And not even for a a job, but in expectation or in the hope that at some time in the future, we might be more likely to get a job or might be more likely to be paid. Um, So that's an article that really came out of my book. But in terms of a new project, um, I actually, um, I don't have a title yet, but I'm thinking um, it will be something like law and power. And I really want to develop the strategic element so i want to start saying okay zoe you've spent time showing us the problems with law the way it reproduces reinforces legitimizes capitalism as well as as well as the scope that exists for change what about how we actually use it what about the strategic questions it's all very well and good to say things could be different but how do we use law to make it different Um, so that's what i'm using and the reason i'm called I'm, i'm focusing on law and power is because I think the answer lies in really reconceptualizing law as one of capitalism's constituted power relations and recognizing how it is inherently bound up with the other necessary power relations, which are class, gender, and race. And I think we can, we understanding the elements of necessity and contingency in each of these in terms of why why are they inherent in capitalism, but also what is the scope for contingency can really help us understand the dynamics of struggle better because there is always this tendency to think that it's class or gender or race rather than recognizing their relationship. But even those scholars that understand the importance of seeing how they interrelate in capitalism don't then make the further leap of saying, well, actually, law is another form of power relation that is integral to capitalism. And, and it's really important to understand how the, it, it constitutes and is shaped by these other power relations. So that's what I want to grapple with in the book, with a view to really developing ideas about strategy, really putting flesh on the bones of this idea of a subversive use of law, really understanding what what should we do? Um, And in a way, it is a response to some criticism I've had, um, but I think it's not personal criticism. I think it's criticism of anybody on the left, which is, well, you know what all the problems are, but you've got no solutions. Well... I have shown the problems. I think I've pointed towards potential solutions, but I want to I flesh that out now. Um, and I want to make it clear that that isn't just me coming up with wild ideas. It's something that requires deep theoretical analysis. It requires an understanding of power and its relationship to law in the cap- in context of capitalism. Um, and that's what I want the book to do. Um, it's scary because, as you say, you are expected almost to have a book ready for publication once your other one's just been published, when in reality these things take, well, now they have to take four or five years, but historically they took about 20 years, but we haven't got that luxury anymore. Um, yeah. But I'm working on it, and um, I'm, fine. I'm I'm enjoying it, but I'm also determined, now that I know where all the pressures on me in the academic context are coming from, not to let the quality of my work be jeopardized by my sense of panic. Um, because I think it's really important. So um, I can't give an expectation as to when it will be finished, but that's what I will be working on for the foreseeable future.
1: Well, thank you for giving us that sneak peek. And I'm sure whenever it's finished, it will be fascinating. Um, And while you are off working on that, um, obviously listeners can read the book we've been mainly discussing, titled The Legal Concept of Work, um, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2022. Zoe, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me.